Good afternoon, everyone. Today, <laughs> today we're going to be continuing our sermon series on the Gospel of John. And we have arrived at the final section of the first chapter of John 1, verses 35 through 51. And what we're going to find in this section that we're going to be looking upon is a number of different things. We're, we're going to you know, see the continuation of basically what that overarching theme of the gospel is. Ba- basically, what we see summarized in John 20, verse 31, if you remember. But these are written so that you may believe that Jesus is the Christ, the Son of God, and that by believing you may have life in his name. So we're going to see that theme through these verses, these 16 verses that we're going to be um, looking upon. And there's going to be a number of other things that we're going to glean, examples that we see from the disciples, from um, from John the Baptist himself, from somewhat skeptics as well. Things to that, that we can take in our daily lives. So with that being said, let's first start with a quick word of prayer. Our most gracious and heavenly Father, Lord, we are so thankful for this time that you have given unto us to read your word, and not only to read it, but to to learn from it, to be taught by it. And Lord, I ask now, as we read and study the Gospel of John, that you may help us to understand truly what um, you intended for us to understand in this book. Lord, I pray that you may um, humble me and um, help me to remember that though I am the one preaching, Lord, that you are merely using me as a vessel to, to proclaim your truth. So help me, Lord, to stay in the truth, Lord, to only speak that which is um, in accordance with your most holy word. And Lord, I pray that to all listening, both directly here in this um, congregation and anyone who may be listening virtually, Lord, that you may grant them understanding to understand what is contained in these verses today. So, Lord, um, may this be a time of great edification, of great blessing. We thank you, God, that you have allowed for us to come now and to learn from your word. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. Well, well, let's first start by actually taking a look at these verses. So, again, we're going to be reading from John chapter 1, and we're going to be reading verses 35 through 51. Again, this is John chapter 1, verses 35 through 51. Again, the next day, John was standing with two of his disciples, and he looked at Jesus as he walked and said, Behold, the Lamb of God. The two disciples heard him speak, and they followed Jesus. And Jesus turned and saw them following and said to them, What do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, which translated means teacher, where are you staying? He said to them, Come, and you will see. So they came and saw where he was staying, and they stayed with him that day, for it was about the tenth hour. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother Simon and said to him, We have found the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip. And Jesus said to him, follow me. Now, Philip was from Bethsaida, of the city of Andrew and Philip. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, we have found him, of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, 
the son of Joseph. Joseph. Nathanael said to him, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said to him, come and see. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and he said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So there is definitely a lot to unpack here in these passages. And since we don't have a lesson today, so I get to borrow from that 20 minutes to add to my 45 minutes. So enjoy. I'm, actually, I'm kidding. It actually won't be as long as you're accustomed to from me. But there is indeed a lot to unpack here. So let's start first by looking at the first section that I want for us to focus in on, which is verses 35 through 37. And, you know, when we look at this section here, so what we see is John the Baptist. The next day after his initial encounter with Jesus and baptizing him, we see now John the Baptist seeing Jesus again. This time he's with two of his disciples. And then he, as he encounters Jesus, he tells him, we see in verse 36, it says, behold, the Lamb of God. He's telling his disciples, hey, this is the man who I was talking about. And in the disciples, we see, heard Jesus speak, and they followed Jesus. So what's interesting in regards to this particular passage, this section here is with those disciples, although initially they were followers of John the Baptist, they were his disciples, they left him for who John was pointing to, John the Baptist. See, John the Baptist, as a forerunner, to the Messiah, knew that he was merely preparing the way and pointing people to Jesus Christ. So when he and his disciples encountered Jesus, he was not hesitant to proclaim to them the Lamb of God. We see he tells them, hey, this is who I was telling y'all about. This is our Messiah. If you have the Geneva Bible and the study notes, it, they indicate John gathered disciples not to himself, but to Christ. Now, I bring this up because so often, even in, in ministry, sometimes people lose sight of the main aim, which is pointing people to Christ as ministers of the gospel. But it doesn't just reside with ministers of the gospel. We can sometimes see this in even a godly home where you have parents leading their children. We have to be very careful to remember who it is that we are pointing people too. We are training disciples for Christ, not for ourselves. The disciples we make for the kingdom because they are Christ and not ours, as we see here with these disciples, may not always stay with us. They may, if called to, leave us to continue the work of the kingdom. If we see those whom we teach as solely ours, our disciples and not Christ, then we won't react in the same way that John the Baptist reacted here. 
No, we will get upset. We'll get defensive. How dare you leave me? However, if we realize that our role is merely to teach and point people to Christ, then when those whom we teach, we disciple, decide to fulfill a ministry God calls them to, that will not upset us. See, the disciples of John, they saw Christ. They were with John the Baptist, but they saw Christ. They heard him speak. And upon seeing and hearing the Messiah, their desire was to follow him now. And what we see is John the Baptist. We don't see any indication of John the Baptist saying, wait, wait, hold on, hold on one second. I'm the one that taught you. I'm the one that helped you to, to see this. Now you're going to leave me? How dare you? That's not what we see with John the Baptist. There was no bruise to his ego to see his followers leave him and follow Christ. And another interesting note when we look at this, it's not just John's reaction, but also too, the disciples, they didn't stay with John when they encountered Christ. They left and progressed to the greater teacher, Jesus himself. And I think this is a reminder for us, especially, you know, as children, as we get older or if we're ever under the tutelage of anyone that remember Whomever is your tutor, um, whoever is teaching you is not your ultimate guide, but Christ is. Sometimes we can allow ourselves to be so aligned with a teacher, with even our, you know, like I said, even as little kids, as we get older, sometimes even our parents, that we forget that they are not our primary guide as we get older as it pertains to the things of the faith. This is not to demean any minister, if they are duly called, for example, and faithfully teaching, rather it is a reminder to avoid the temptation to turn any teacher into the Messiah themselves. Take the disciples, again, of John the Baptist, as we see here. Had they been so inextricably aligned with John the Baptist, when they saw Christ, they would not have left John to follow Christ. And in doing so, they would have missed out on the greater blessing of learning from the Messiah himself, rather than a prophet. And again, this is something that I think we have to keep in mind. I'm sure you've seen it. I know I've seen it so many times in which you, you see as people get older or whatnot, as they start to learn or try to learn and understand that their understanding of much things doesn't come from an understanding of the word of God itself, but of whomever it was that taught them. So then, therefore, there is no understanding within themselves in regards to the scripture. And if we are, I guess it's like the old adage, you know, you give a person a fish, you feed them for a day, you teach a person how to fish, you know, you can teach them for, for life. If you're directing them in the word or whatnot, there will come that point in time in which they will be able to take the word of God themselves through what has been taught to now learn on their own, no longer dependent on who brought them along. And this is what we see with the disciples, leaving John the Baptist and now following Christ himself. And then what's interesting, after we see the disciples now following Jesus, Jesus notices them. In verse 38, we read that Jesus turned and saw them following him, and he said, uh, what do you seek? They said to him, Rabbi, 
which translated again means teacher, where are you staying? Staying. And Jesus replies, he says, come and you will see. So they came where he was staying and they stayed with him on that day for it was about the 10th hour. So again, we see the disciples after leaving John and following Jesus, they notice Jesus notices him. And he turns and asks them a question, a simple question, but also a, a profound question when you look at examples from the scripture. What do you seek? And see, that question, what do you seek? When you read through the gospel of John, and not even just the gospel of John, but if you were to look at all the accounts in the four gospels, what you notice is over the course of Jesus' ministry, there are many people who follow Christ. There are many people who at hearing him speak, start to follow him, at seeing his signs, start to follow him. However, even though they were following him, what they were seeking from following him many times was self-serving. For example, if you read in John chapter 6, the account where um, Jesus feeds thousands of people from five loaves of bread and two pieces of fish, we know that this amazes the crowd. The next day after this happens, people were seeking Jesus and confronts him. And then Jesus tells them in John 6, verse 26, truly, truly, I say to you, you seek me, not because you saw signs, but because you ate of the loaves and were filled. So they were seeking Jesus. But see, their reasoning for seeking Jesus wasn't because they wanted to be taught and under the tutelage of this great Messiah to learn, to receive salvation from him, but because they got something tangible. They didn't care about Jesus as the Messiah, but rather what Christ can give them. We read, if you look at John chapter 6, they even wanted to put him as king. But then based on what Jesus saw wasn't because they truly saw him as the king of kings, but rather to be spoiled by him. In other accounts, when you look, there are people that followed him, not necessarily because they wanted anything from him, but quite frankly, because they wanted to trap him in order to kill him. In John chapter 7, for example, Jesus confronts some of these people and he tells them in verse 19 of John chapter 7, did not Moses give you the law? And yet none of you carries out the law. Why do you seek to kill me? So again, not everyone that was following Jesus were following him for the right reasons. Far too many of the people who were following him, if they weren't trying to kill him, wanted to receive something from him. Now, Jesus didn't mind giving them something. But see, the problem was what he was offering was not what they wanted. Going back to John 6, verse 27, when Jesus speaks to the crowd that just wanted for him to continue to do signs and get, you know, basically eat again. He says, do not work for the food which perishes, but for the food which endures to eternal life, which the son of man will give to you. For on him, the father God has set his seal. Jesus was giving them what Peter states in John 6, verse 68, words of eternal life. He was offering them bread that led to eternal life. In John 4, with the woman in the well, Jesus was offering the woman, um, the woman water that will never make her thirsty again. 
Now, since these former disciples, going back to these disciples of John, since these former disciples were following Jesus, Jesus wanted to know, well, what it is, what was it that they were seeking? Were they looking for a genie to grant them their fleshly desires? Were they looking for a way to trap Jesus and have him arrested? Were they just wanting to see a glorified Houdini or David Blaine who could just do a whole bunch of cool magic tricks? What is it that they were seeking? The response that they gave to him answered that question. They asked, Rabbi, teacher, remember, Rabbi, where are you staying? They answered Jesus' question by asking him another question. But in asking the question, they called Jesus Rabbi. Again, meaning teacher. These disciples, former disciples of John and now disciples of Jesus, were looking to be discipled, to be taught by the Messiah. They were following Jesus, not for the signs or for the extra food, but for his word. They wanted to be fed, but the bread they wanted was the bread that many others rejected, the bread of life. That desire for this meant that they were willing to be wherever Jesus was. They did not mind spending whatever time they had with Jesus so long as they could be with him and learn from him. That's why they asked, where are you staying? Lord, we just heard a little snippet from you. Where are you? So we can be with you. So we can hear from you. And Jesus being willing to give to whomever that type of food, that bread of life, did not mind spending the time to feed them. So Jesus tells them, come, come and and you will see. Jesus did not reject them. When we show a true desire to be a follower of Jesus, Jesus will not reject us. When our desire is to seek that which never perishes, Jesus will not deny us that. See, these disciples had no ulterior motives. They weren't like some of the false disciples that we'll read about in John 6 and John 7 and throughout the Gospels. They had no ulterior motives of just wanting to be, they just wanted to be with the Messiah and learn from him. And because of that, Jesus could not be more accommodating. Matthew Henry, commenting on this passage, he writes it in this way. He says, the question Christ put to them is what should all what we should all put to ourselves when we begin to follow Christ and take upon us the profession of his holy religion? What seek ye? What do we design and desire? Those that follow Christ and yet seek the world or themselves or the praise of men deceive themselves. What seek we in seeking Christ? Do we seek a teacher, a ruler, and a reconciler? In following Christ, do we seek the favor of God and eternal life? If our eye be single in this, we are full of light. So ask yourselves that question. What are you seeking in following Christ? What are you seeking? Is he your God? Is he your teacher, your ruler? Is he a genie to you? Is he just someone to where you look at him as something where you can just get what you want, your fleshly desires? Or is he your God whom you will submit to and learn from? So Jesus asked them, what do you seek? 
and they come and they spend time with him. And then now we see after spending that time with him. The next part, which I want to read, and I'll just go ahead and read it. This is verses 40 through 46. Let's see what happens now after they come and stay with the Messiah. We read starting in verse 40. One of the two who heard John speak and followed him was Andrew, Simon Peter's brother. He found first his own brother, Simon, and said to him, We have found him, the Messiah, which translated means Christ. He brought him to Jesus. Jesus looked at him and said, You are Simon, the son of John. You shall be called Cephas, which is translated Peter. The next day he purposed to go into Galilee, and he found Philip, and Jesus said to him, Follow me. Now Philip was from Bethsaida of the city of Andrew and Peter. Philip found Nathanael and said to him, We have found him of whom Moses and the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. Nathanael said to him, Can any good thing come out of Nazareth? Philip said, Philip said to him, Come and see. So there, there are three things that I want for us to take a look at here in this section. The first, so you notice with Andrew and with Philip. So they encounter Christ. They hear Christ. And what was their immediate response after encountering Christ and seeing Christ? What do they do? We see with Andrew, he finds his brother, um, Peter, and tells Peter about the Messiah. We see Philip goes and tells his friend, Nathaniel, hey, we found the Messiah. We see this immediate desire as soon as they find the Messiah to tell others of the Messiah. They did not hide this discovery of Christ to themselves. Rather, they told other people that they loved about the good news that they just heard. They told others of the Messiah that they just encountered. Again, I got to ask you, are you doing that? All of us who have placed our faith in Jesus Christ, we have encountered Jesus, so to speak. We have heard the good news. We have been blessed by that treasure. We have seen the pearl of great price. That blessing that we have received upon hearing the gospel message is something that we ought to want for others near and dear to us to also hear. But do we do that? Are we like Andrew? Are we like Philip? Or do we hide the gospel from those whom we love? Now, obviously, we know that in and of ourselves, we don't have the power to convert people, but we do have the ability to proclaim this gospel message. Andrew, while only having recently seen Christ, having Christ revealed to him, he goes and tells his brother Peter. Now, most of us, know Peter way more than we know Andrew. What was the result of Andrew telling Peter? Well, Peter ends up becoming one of the more decorated apostles, so to speak. God, we see throughout the rest of the scriptures, uses Peter mightily in the ministry. We see that in the book of Acts. And to this day, we're instructed by the words of Peter in First and Second Peter. All of that started in the sovereign plan of God because his brother was willing to go and tell him about the Messiah. So let us strive 
to follow the examples that we see here of Andrew and Philip and share the gospel with those whom we love. John Calvin, he writes this. He says the circumstance of Andrew immediately bringing his brother expresses the nature of faith, which does not conceal or quench the light, but rather spreads it in every direction. Or Matthew Henry, I love how he puts it here. He says, true grace hates monopolies and loves not to eat its morsels alone. So we ought to be willing when we hear this good news to tell others whom we love also of this good news. Now, what's interesting is not only did they tell him about Christ, but they also, as we see here in both instances, brought them to Christ. We see Andrew bringing Peter to Christ. We see Philip telling Nathaniel, who is somewhat skeptical, well, won't you come and see? See, ultimately, what converts Peter and Nathaniel is not Andrew or Philip, but Christ. Christ is the source of our salvation. And Andrew and Philip brought their loved one to the source directly. Our aim also should be to bring our loved ones to the source of salvation directly. Well, obviously, we don't have Christ physically present with us right now, but we have his words. We are part of his body. We, so what we ought to aim for is to bring them to Christ's words contained in the scriptures so that those words can enlighten their eyes to the truth. We ought to aim to bring them to church where the body of Christ is, where the word of Christ is preached, where they're around others who are members of the body. Now, another interesting thing. So we see again, Philip, Andrew telling Peter, telling Nathaniel of the gospel. And then what's interesting is what Philip tells Nathaniel in verse 45. He says, we have found him of whom Moses in the law and also the prophets wrote, Jesus of Nazareth, the son of Joseph. So Philip tells Nathaniel, hey, you know what we read about in our scriptures, which at that time would have just been the Old Testament. I found him. That ought to be a reminder for us that, see, you don't merely learn about the Messiah in the New Testament. You learn about him in the Old as well. John chapter 5, verse 39, Jesus himself says, you search the scriptures because you think that in them you have eternal life. But it is these that testify about me. Jesus explicitly states that the scriptures, which again at that time would have only been the Old Testament, testify about him. In Luke chapter 24, verses 44 to 47, as they're on the road to Emmaus, Jesus is talking and he says, These are my words which I spoke to you while I was with you, that all things which are written about me in the law of Moses and the prophets and the Psalms must be fulfilled. Then he opened their minds to understand the scriptures and he said to them, Thus it is written. So what he's about to say are things that are written the scriptures thus it is written that the christ would suffer and rise again on the third day 
and that repentance for forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed in his name to all the nations beginning from Jerusalem. So he says, all these things, it is written. Jesus states, it is written that the Messiah would suffer and die. He said that it was written that the Messiah would rise on the third day. He said that it was written that repentance for the forgiveness of sins will be proclaimed throughout all the nations. These aren't new concepts that the New Testament introduced. Rather, Jesus and his ministry is the fulfillment of all that the Old Testament spoke about. And if you don't believe me, here are just a couple of passages from the Old Testament that point to this. We see, starting at the very beginning in Genesis chapter 3, verses 15, after the fall of man, we see God saying it, I will put enmity between you, talking to the serpent, between you and the woman, and between your seed and her seed. He shall bruise you on the head and you shall bruise him on the heel. And then we see in Isaiah chapter 7, verse 14, Therefore the Lord himself will give you a sign. Behold, a virgin will be with child and bear a son, and she will call his name Emmanuel. Or how about this in Isaiah chapter 9, verses 6 through 7? For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. There will be no end to the increase of his government or peace on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish it. And then again in Isaiah 53, verse 5, probably one of the more famous passages that point to Christ. But he was pierced for our um, through for our transgressions. He was crushed for our iniquities. The chastening for our well-being fell upon him. And by his scourging, we are healed. Or how about this in Zechariah chapter 12, verse 10? I will pour out on the house of David and on the inhabitants of Jerusalem the spirit of grace and of supplication so that they will look at me whom they have pierced and they will mourn for him as one mourns for an only son and they will weep bitterly over him like the bitter weeping over a firstborn. See, and these are just, this is just a pinprick of the passages in the Old Testament that speak of Christ, that speak of his ministry, that speak of his redemptive work. See, in, in that brief encounter that Philip had with Jesus, he saw how the Old Testament spoke of him. Now, of course, for, for us Christians today, we do have the advantage over the saints during those times from the standpoint that we do have the complete revelation of God with the addition of the New Testament. The New Testament helps to bring clarity and light to what was shadowy in the Old Testament. St. Augustine had a, a very famous adage, which I think is very, very true. He wrote that in the old, the new is concealed, and in the new, the old is revealed. So in the old, we, we see all the things that now are revealed to us in the New Testament can be found even in the Old Testament. So let's not neglect, you know, that Quite frankly, two-thirds of the Bible that so very little of us take time to actually read and study. Because in it, like with Philip, like with any faithful Christian and Jew at that time who believed in the gospel, you will find Christ in his ministry. Now, we see Philip talking to Nathaniel, telling him, hey, we found the Messiah, Jesus of Nazareth. 
And Nathaniel gives this very interesting kind of remark. He says, well, can any good thing come out of Nazareth? I mean, that place? That place, Nazareth? I, I, surely I would have thought it would have been a greater place than that, but you're telling me that place over here? Now, you know, the remark that we see Nathaniel give in regards to Nazareth is pretty interesting because based on how he responds, it would appear that Nazareth would not be considered a place where someone as important as the Messiah would have come from. To, to use, to, to try and draw like an analogy, that would be the equivalent of someone, because, you know, they, I guess, you know, you know, people in the Northeast do think that they're smarter than people down south. That would be the equivalent of someone from like Massachusetts, maybe near like Harvard or someplace like that, thinking of someone from Mississippi. You know, that kind of that condescension itself. Now, that being said, it does also make sense that God would ordain for the Messiah to come out of a region as looked down as Nazareth. Why do I say that? Well, this speaks to the humiliation of Christ. Remember, this God whom came down is God. You get a vision, you get, you get an insight into, you know, how he's worshipped in the prophecy of Isaiah in Isaiah chapter 6, where Isaiah sees this vision of the God sitting on his throne, angels worshipping him. The same God takes on flesh, comes down from his throne, and not only comes to earth, but then comes to a small little country, Israel, and a town that even people in Israel look down upon, Nazareth. So this humility that Christ exudes I think is something that we don't want to overlook because, again, it speaks to that humiliation. Now, he says this, and again, Philip says, well, why don't you come and see? I know it sounds outlandish. Yes, this great Messiah of ours coming from Nazareth. But hey, come, come see for yourself. And then we, we see this starting in verse 47. And actually, this brings us to the final point part of this section, and I'll just read it just to refresh your minds in regards to what verses 47 to 51 speak on. Jesus saw Nathanael coming to him and said of him, behold, an Israelite indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now Nathanael said to him, how do you know me? Jesus answered and said to him, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Nathanael answered him, Rabbi, you are the son of God. You are the king of Israel. Jesus answered and said to him, because I said to you that I saw you under the fig tree, do you believe? You will see greater things than these. And he said to him, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. So we see here, you know, as the skeptical Nathaniel comes to Jesus, Jesus starts to state things that clearly per Nathaniel's ear. He tells Nathanael, as we saw, behold, an Israelite, indeed, in whom there is no deceit. Now, when you, when you look through the scriptures, not much is said about Nathanael. Matter of fact, I think based on my research, I think the only book really that talks about Nathanael is actually the, the Gospel of John. So we don't know that much in regards to Nathanael. But 
the description that Jesus gives of him was enough for Nathaniel to want to know more. For Jesus, whom Nathaniel never meant, met to describe him in a way that was accurate, caused Nathaniel to reconsider his doubts. So Nathaniel asked Jesus the obvious question that anyone would ask a stranger who starts to kind of describe him in a way that you wouldn't expect for someone who you didn't know to describe you. He says, well, how do you know me? Are you Secret Service? Are you CIA? How, how did you know this about me? Now, Jesus goes one step further to demonstrate that he is the Messiah. He starts to tell Nathaniel something that only Nathaniel would have known based on his response. He says, before Philip called you, when you were under the fig tree, I saw you. Now, that this was something that only Nathaniel would have known can be inferred by his response. It wasn't that Jesus saw Nathaniel in the distance under the fig tree, but rather that Nathaniel was alone under a fig tree where no one else was. So the fact that Jesus stated something that only Nathaniel would have known made Nathaniel realize that he was not in the midst of a mere human, but rather the son of God. To Nathaniel, what he had just witnessed was marvelous. Now to Jesus, it was a mere appetizer for the works that he was going to perform throughout his ministry, starting actually, as we will see in chapter two, with at Cana at the wedding. So then Jesus tells Nathaniel, truly, truly, I say to you, you will see the heavens opened and the angels of God ascending and descending on the son of man. Now, this past, this section here is very, very interesting. Now, the fact that Nathaniel calls Jesus the son of God and the king of Israel, as well as Philip letting Nathaniel know about Jesus fulfilling what was indicated in the law and the prophets, shows that both of them had some knowledge regarding the Old Testament based on their responses. So Jesus tells Nathaniel and Philip, something that would have caused them to think back to a dream that their ancestor, Jacob, had in Genesis chapter 28, where the same language is used as we see in verse 51 here. So if you have your Bibles, turn to Genesis chapter 28, verses 10 through 19, and you'll see what I'm talking about. So starting in verse 10, we read this in, again in Genesis chapter 28. Then Jacob departed from Beersheba and went toward Haran. And he came to a certain place and spent the night there because the sun had set. And he took one of the stones of the place and put it under his head and lay down in that place. He had a dream and behold, a ladder was set on the earth with, with its top reaching to heaven. And behold, the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And behold, the Lord stood above it and said, I am the Lord, the God of your father, Abraham, and the God of Isaac, the land on which you lie. I will give it to you and to your descendants. Your descendants will also be like the dust of the earth, and you will spread out to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And in you and in your descendants shall all the families of the earth be blessed. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised. Then Jacob awoke from his sleep and said, surely the Lord is in this place. And I did not know it. He was afraid and said, how awesome is this place? There is none other than the house of God. And this is the gate of heaven. 
So Jacob rose early in the morning and took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up as a pillar and poured oil on his top. He called the name of that place Bethel, house of God. However, previously the name of that city had been Luz. So again, we see in this vision, this dream that Jacob has, he sees a ladder reaching up to heaven and the angels of God are ascending and descending or going up and down on it. And God is standing above that ladder. And Jacob, upon having this dream, recognizes that God was in the place where he was sleeping. Now, that same God who spoke to Jacob nearly 2,000 years earlier is talking face to face with Nathaniel and Philip. The same God who stood above the ladder in heaven in Genesis 28 has now descended and stepped foot on earth. That same God who did marvelous works during the time of the patriarchs is about to do marvelous works now in their time. So in other words, Jesus is telling them, you think what I just showed you and just knowing where you were impressed you and was special? Brothers, you ain't seen nothing yet. As was alluded to in the prologue in John 1 verse 14, and the word became flesh and dwelt among us and we saw his glory, glory as of the only begotten from the father, full of grace and truth. The glory of God was about to be manifested to the people in the many signs and works that we're going to see Christ perform throughout the rest of this gospel. Nathaniel caught a glimpse of God's glory in his encounter. John the Baptist saw the Messiah's glory when he baptized him and pointed even his own disciples to him. Andrew and Philip recognized his glory. Didn't keep the Messiah to themselves, but told others of him. The Son of Man, Christ, has descended and came upon the earth. He humbled himself to the point of being born in a manger in Bethlehem and raised in a lowly and looked down upon town of Nazareth. Now, this person, who would have not have fit anyone's description of the great Savior King, this man will make his glory abundantly clear and let it be known through all that we're about to see and read in the following chapters that he is the promised Savior that the Old Testament spoke about. That he is the son of God. He is the word made flesh. He is our savior. And he is him that if we believe in him, if we trust in him, that we will have eternal life. It will be abundantly clear throughout the following chapters that this man, more than just a mere man, but is God made flesh. Let us now go to the Lord our God in prayer.